0: The reading of the word this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace for how do you know wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? The grass withers and the flowers fade.
1: The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to behold uh, wonderful things from your word this morning, that you would give us uh, hearts to receive uh, what you have to show us by your spirit uh, in your word, that you would give us minds to understand, um, and that we would be uh, intent upon putting the scriptures uh, to work. When all is said and done because of what Christ has done in us and it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen So we tend to uh, live in extremes in our world We're either hot or cold when it comes to certain issues that are in our life. Uh, we're either a Republican or Democrat Usually we're never right down the middle uh, We're either conservative or liberal. We're either a, a Calvinist and or, or an Arminian uh, we, we, we're, we're for this and against that simply and only because we're for this, we feel like we have to be against that. And so we're dealing with these extremes in our life. And extremes are what Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth. We saw last week in chapter 6, he was dealing with one the one extreme of, of just licentiousness or, or what I'm going to call this morning hedonism. And then this morning in our text, Paul is dealing with the opposite extreme, which is asceticism, or what we would call also legalism. So, which are also two extremes we still deal with today. Hedonism uh, is is the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence, just to give you a Webster Dictionary uh, definition there. We also know that is licentiousness, that we are free to do whatever we want. Uh, But we can say with confidence that the broader culture in which we live is extremely hedonistic. People do what's right in their own eyes with the subtitle, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. In chapter 6, we saw illustrated what hedonism looks like when it comes to sex and the body. The Corinthians were believing and living the cultural mantra that said, all things are lawful for me. My body will be destroyed, therefore I can do whatever I want to with my body, with whom I, whomever I want with it. And a lot of this comes down to both the church at some level and our world giving us this distorted understanding concerning the body, our own bodies, our own physical bodies, and sex. So in Corinth, which was a hedonistic culture, marriage was not the place where one went for sexual f- fulfillment. Your wife in that, in that time was a symbol of status and for procreation, for making, uh, giving, giving the husband children to pass on the family name. Nothing more. Prostitution was the place of sexual enjoyment and fulfillment. That's where they went for that. But the problem that was happening was the hedonism of Corinth was starting to creep into the church. We saw that last week. Christians were saying, yeah, we can do whatever we want with our body. We can have sex with whomever we want to because our bodies are going to be destroyed. And Paul says, no. And so some Christians in the church reacted to this hedonism, reacted to this licentiousness by jumping to the opposite extreme of asceticism and they said well if this is wrong if this opposite if this extreme is wrong then we are going to get as far away from that extreme as possible and this is what we're going to do so asceticism is 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 severe self-discipline avoidance of any sort of of pleasure in fear of sinning and again we we know that as legalism that's probably the the word you're most comfortable uh, hearing But you can see this overreaction in the very first verse of chapter 7. Look at at that verse with me. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he quotes them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, or that actually the word there for, for woman can actually be better translated as wife. So it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife. So in in this verse, and in chapter 6, verse 12, and chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, Paul is quoting what they have said in a letter that they wrote to him. So they are actually voicing concern about living in a hedonistic culture, and they're concerned about it because it's creeping into the church, and so now they are asking Paul for advice and wisdom and direction. What do we do here, Paul? Because now they were saying, and practicing at some level, We shouldn't have sex at all. If if sex is this bad and it can be abused in this way so much, then we need to stop it altogether, even within marriage. So now that Paul has addressed one misunderstanding of how the gospel plays out in everyday life, another misunderstanding arises out of that. Because they're saying, yes, we agree with that, Paul, and so we're just going to do the opposite, and this is what it looks like. And let me just say, just as kind of a side note, that's okay. That's okay that, that misunderstandings are corrected and then more misunderstandings happen. I think that's probably the normal Christian life is that we are, we are always seeking to bring all of life in line with the gospel. And so that's what Paul is doing here with the Corinthian church once again. Because chapter seven is the answer to this particular question in verse one. So we can, we can nuance their question with a few other questions. This is, this is sort of the things they were asking. If all this is true about sex and sexual freedom and all those things, it is better not to have sex with. Is it better not to have sex with anyone? Well, perhaps those who are single should remain single because we don't want to tempt them. Or 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 those who are married should stop having sex altogether. And surely if you are united with Christ like this, it must be impossible to continue to be united in marriage to a non believer. Shouldn't one rather be separated or divorced? And these are the questions that Paul is going to address here. Essentially, because what we see happening is this jump from extremes. From from, from hedonism, from the extreme of no no constraints whatsoever, to the extremes of asceticism containing uh, constraints all around everything. And so Paul is going to take these verses and bring the Corinthians back in line with the gospel. And he does it through the idea of marriage and the practice of marriage. So three things I want us to see here in the text this morning that I think Paul is pointing to. One is the joy of marriage. Two is the burden of marriage. And then three is the archetype of marriage. So the joy of marriage, the burden of marriage, and the archetype of marriage. So first, the joy of marriage. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or his wife, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. I'm using the Christian Standard Version of the Bible. Um, So uh, I think what was read earlier was the ESV. And the only reason I I like the Christian Standard Version of the Bible, it's a great translation, by the way, But I don't like the word conjugal. I don't know about you, but that just doesn't strike me as very romantic. Um, So I I wanted to use CSB. I think it's translated better in that way. It's more clear. But first off, what Paul is not saying here, just to be clear, Paul is not saying here that the solution to sexual temptation is marriage. Marriage. Just because you're tempted sexually doesn't mean you should get married. does it mean like, oh, well, I'm sexually, I'm tempted in this way, so I need to run out and find a wife so that I will no longer be tempted in that way. That is not what Paul is saying here. In the the phrase in verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with his wife, was actually another quotation that was used by some in Corinth. It was something that was spreading around the culture, and they were were spreading this into the church as well. And so the Corinthian Christians had questions about this idea. Is this the solution to hedonism, Paul? Is this the solution to the sexual immorality uh, that that we're dealing with? Do we just stop having sex altogether, even with our own wives? Would that not be the best solution? And the answer that Paul gives them is... Absolutely not. Because both ideas of hedonism and asceticism, both ideas of licentiousness and legalism, and you need to hear this because I think in a lot of ways in the church, we typically default to legalism. Both of those ideas are unbiblical. So instead of defaulting to one of these two extremes, Paul gives two biblical ideas that are meant to bring out the joy in marriage. Two biblical ideas. The first one is service. Look at verses three through five. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what Paul is saying here is instead of denying yourself for ascetic reasons and saying no to sex in every possible avenue a husband or wife should deny themselves in service to each other instead. For Paul to write the words he did in verses 1 through 5, most of us would say are pretty tame. We would say, for the most part, we would probably say, of course, Paul, we agree with that. That is something that we should be practicing. Let me go talk to my wife. Let me let her read this uh, particular passage out loud to me. But, in first century culture, these words that Paul is writing are radical. Because in first century culture, which was a patriarchal society, the men ruled in every single way, uh, That the needs and desires of women were rarely considered. Women were not consulted on pretty much anything in this particular culture, even in marriage. And now... Paul is claiming that men and women have equal rights in the marriage bed. And that was a radical idea that was guided by Christianity, that was guided by the scriptures, that was guided by the gospel. And so he uses this to teach on the idea of servanthood and marriage And at the same time, bringing clarity to the controversial issue of sexual immorality that was creeping into the church that we looked at back in chapter 6. So not only is sex supposed to take place within the context of marriage between a husband and a wife, sex is meant to be a way in which husbands and wives serve one another. So in the Bible, a consistent pattern that we see is that a beautiful marriage, a joyful marriage, is maintained when selfless service is active, and that's just that's just not just in sex. And I totally did not preface this; it's gonna be a little PG thirteen. So uh, just hold on to your seats a little bit, guys. But um, but a husband and a wife should be putting each other's needs before their own in, in every instance. And, and so so trying the way I like to put it is you are trying to outdo one another in acts of service. So you, you, could, you could look at it even as a competition. How can I outserve my wife, or how can I outserve my husband in every possible way in our marriage? This is how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of. Of others and marriage marriage is a great context to practice this every single day this is the person that you see see every day at multiple moments and multiple hours of a day you see them at their best and you see them at their worst you see them in ways that nobody else will see them and in our text today, this sort of self-giving service, this sort of self-giving love, is in the context of sex. So this means, just thinking back to what we were talking about last week, that, that sex is not gross. Sex is not wrong. Sex is not Shameful. And also that sex in, in marriage is for more than just having children. God has given us sex for our enjoyment. Now I say that, and you're, I've heard, I, I didn't hear any amens, but I saw it in your eyes. Um, sex is not the end all, be all in marriage. Okay, it's not the end all, be all in marriage. Uh, to make it that would ruin your marriage. And I just know even as you you young 20-somethings, eventually you will be a young 40-something or 50-something or 60-something. And just to let you know if you're not aware of those things, things will slow down. And, and that, that is not going to be something you engage in as often as you might be doing now. And so to make sex prior, a priority one, When you get to that moment in time, it is going to crush your marriage. I'm just giving you a future heads up. So it's not the end-all, be-all in marriage. To make it that would ruin your marriage. But at the same time, sex is also uh, a measurement of health within a marriage. To to withhold sex from your spouse, as Paul is talking about here, to withhold sex from your spouse unless it's it's agreed upon so that you can go and and pray uh, and seek the Lord on on something in particular. And I'm just saying, in 15-plus years of pastoral ministry, I have never met anyone who's ever done that. Never. And I've counseled a lot of couples. Never. I'm not saying it can't happen and it probably should happen at some level, but but to withhold sex from your spouse, unless it's agreed upon, to seek the Lord over something specific, it is not loving, it is not serving, and it is not biblical for you to do that. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, put it this way. And just to give you a, a, just a little bit of context in what, what, I don't know who's, which, who's writing which part of this book, Tim or his wife, Kathy, but, but the context in which he's saying this or she's saying this is he's saying that, that we make this covenant when we get married. We stand bef- you know, before the pastor and before God and before all of these witnesses, and we make this covenant with this woman or with this man. And, and Keller said, the Kellers say that sex is actually the renewal of that covenant, It's the renewal of that connection. It's the reminder of who you have covenanted with and before. And so they say this about sex. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less than that. So service is one way to bring out the joy in marriage. The second way that Paul describes a joyful marriage is through commitment to one another. Look at verses 10 through 16. Jump over there with me. But Paul writes this. He says, "'To the married I give this command, "'not I but the Lord. "'A wife is not to leave her husband, "'but if she does leave, "'she must remain unmarried.'" or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. It's a very practical advice that Paul is is giving to the Corinthians uh, in these verses. So I I I just read a recent study. It's like a 2023 study. Uh, which is very rare to find, um, but I just Googled a study on this, and a really reliable source popped up. Don't, don't, uh, don't worry. Um, but it said that uh, the number one reason for getting a divorce nowadays is lack of commitment. Number one reason for divorce now is lack of commitment. And this is what the study says. Marriage is not always easy. So success requires both spouses to be dedicated to their union and serious about making it last. That's why it is not surprising that a lack of commitment could spell disaster for a couple. Now, I'm sure there's, there's lots of nuance to, to what they mean by commitment uh, that could fall into that word, but I think it's really important that we understand that even in the broader culture, that lack of commitment can lead to divorce. And Paul here is giving practical wisdom concerning this topic of what it means for Christians in the church to be committed to one another in marriage. So marriage is not to be a temporary relationship that one can easily escape simply because things get hard. You know, when you hit those bumps in the road that you do not think that you can overcome, or or or, or, or things don't turn out the way that you expected. So this person that you married, uh, and now that you've been married, with, married to them for a week or a month or six months or a year or whatever, you realize this is not the person that I was dating. And just so you know, this is the exact person you were dating. They were just playing a little game with you, and we all do it if you're married. You all do, you all play this game. You all kind of paint yourself into this perfect light, but when you get uh, when you get behind closed doors as a married couple the, the the real self comes out but but even so it is not a means in which you get out of the marriage which is to say if if you are one that that likes to use divorce the word divorce as a threat against your spouse so you're getting a heated argument and you say you know what i could, we should divorce that's what we should do and that's your common pattern and that's what you default to. Um, let me just tell you that when you are doing that, you are actually walking in sin towards your spouse. And and most importantly, you are actually walking in sin before God. And I would say if that is you that you need to repent of that sin to your spouse, but also to repent of that sin. God. Because you're using something that is very trite and what God says not to do as a threat against that person that you have given your entire life to. Marriage is a commitment. That's why we say vows on our wedding day. Uh, The vows that I use with, with couples go something like this, and I have them repeat it. They're standing literally as close to this mic as I am to this mic right now I'm to this couple I can hear them do it I see them do it and some of the words are from this day forward forsaking all others and clinging only to you like you are the one you are the chosen one like there is no one else that I'm I'm done dating. I'm deleting the dating apps I hope you've already done that way before the the wedding day but there is no one else in my life. I am committed to you, clinging, clinging only to you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I will cherish you and love you as Christ loved the church till death do us part. Not divorce. Till death do us part. So, and, and I think sometimes we, we, I said these words you know when, when when I married Tara, and so I'm sure a lot of you married folks said these exact same words. But do you really do you really listen to them and let them sink in? For better or worse, not everything's going to be rosy all the time. And I know some of you are going through hard things, uh, for rich or for poor. You're you're not you're not always going to have money. Sometimes you will be poor. We have been, we still are. Um. Sickness and in health, like, you, you're, you're going, you're, you are going to get sick, you, and, that, and that's not just the man flu that, that, that husbands like to get sometimes, but even so, like, you might get cancer. You might, you might be paralyzed. You might become, uh, you know, wheelchair-bound. But in our world today, and even in the church, sadly, divorce is normal with over 50% of marriages ending in divorce, this should come as no surprise. Um, I know a, a lot of y'all stories, and most of you come from divorced homes, so you know the reality of that. Some of you have, have, have had to suffer divorce in your own marriage because of unfaithfulness or abuse. So you know the reality of that? Um, you would think we don't know the reality of it because we We kind of promote it and celebrate it on reality TV shows. Tara and I were watching one uh, called Married at First Sight, which is a horrible show. But we watched it for a a couple of seasons. And and if you don't understand the the premise of it, um, it's where a man or a woman uh, meet their spouse for the first time at the altar. It's the first time they've seen them. It's the first time they've spoken to them. They know nothing about them. And it is the cringiest thing you will ever experience. But it's run for 16 seasons so far with 64 couples uh, getting married. But only 12 of those couples, surprisingly, are still married today. Now, now, this is, the, this is kind of the plan for it. They're, they're required to stay married for eight weeks because you can get to know somebody in eight weeks uh, until decision day when they will declare their stand to either remain married or divorce. So, so if you were thinking, oh, 12 couples, that's, per, that's pretty good statistic right, right there with it. I mean, just considering the circumstances, but that's 52 couples that have chosen divorce out of 64. And just to take it a step further, I just read this. The state of Wisconsin recently introduced a new rule stating that a marriage could be annulled if it doesn't work out within a year. And the only stipulation is, is A, if it's not working out, and B, is if you don't have children within that year. So you have a whole year to test the waters. And if it doesn't work out, you can, you can have your 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 marriage annulled, and so annulment is actually worse than marriage, worse than divorce worse than marriage, worse than divorce, because annulment says something never existed. You just get rid of it altogether. And so what we learn from this is that our culture has a very low view of marriage, and this was true in Corinth as well. So in verses 10 through 15, Paul addresses every scenario that is happening inside the church in Corinth and applies the balm of the gospel to each of them. Basically saying that the most important aspect of your marriage is how the gospel is put on display to your spouse. Separation doesn't do that. Uh, divorce doesn't do that. Even, even Paul says, even if your husband or wife isn't a believer yet, Paul says you can't divorce them. And just as a quick side note, um, just in case you know you're single in here and you're thinking, there you go. I've been, I've been talking to this guy; he's not a Christian, or I've been talking to this girl; she's not a Christian. And there is Paul's permission to get married to someone who isn't a Christian. That is not what Paul is saying. These are these are men and women who, the church is new in the first century. It's not like this. Like, it's new. They're meeting in people's homes. They're discovering what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a really hard context. And some of these new Christians are married, and their spouses have not become Christians. And so Paul is saying the best way that you can declare the gospel to your unbelieving spouse is to stay with them, to serve them, to be committed to them. So Paul, Paul is saying this isn't grounds for divorce because there are grounds for divorce. We can talk about that some other time, but there are grounds for divorce, but Paul says this is not one of them. But rather, it's an opportunity to live out the gospel before them. That's why he says, how do you know? How do you know that your, your, your wife won't become a Christian husband? How do you know that you won't save your husband wife? How do you know that won't, that, that won't happen? And as you live with them, That's what Paul means with they are holy. It doesn't mean they're actually holy. It doesn't mean they're a Christian because they live with a Christian. What Paul is saying there is they have this, this gospel opportunity living before them every single day. So it's a benefit for your husband. It's a benefit for your unbelieving wife. It's a benefit for your unbelieving children that you love Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about. Which means... Marriage is not merely lip service to another person. Like you say, you don't just say these vows and just go. Well, I can break those whenever I want to. But it's a it's a covenant before God, not to be taken lightly. Because both service and commitment bring out the joy that is found to be in, found in marriage. Um, but we also live in a world that, at the same time, makes marriage burdensome as well. So, so the fact that Paul is having to address these varying scenarios in verses 10 through 16 is proof of the, the, the burden of marriage. Um, I read this book this summer. It's called How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. And I, I'm just going to say it from here. It's one of the best marriage books I've ever read. It's a memoir. His wife cheats on him. And then it's him just kind of going through that mess. And it is beautiful. But Harrison Scott Key speaks to, speaks to this very idea of the burden of marriage after he has found out his wife has had an affair. And and after he started to kind of look at his own heart to see, to see that it's not all her fault. Marriage is difficult. And so he says these words. He says, I used to think that only the deviant or unlucky... Addicts, swingers, abusers, drunks got to the tortured point in marriage where divorce obtains. Nobody ever told me that every marriage comes to the cataract in the river many times over, that every marriage goes over the falls. The two of you go tumbling across the smooth, mossy rocks of time, and down you go, and some couples die, and some don't. But everybody goes toppling. So, Essentially what, what what Harrison Scott key is saying there is marriage is admittedly burdensome. A marriage is marriage is admittedly hard and if you believe otherwise you are delusional. This is why Paul says in verse 7, I wish all were as I myself am. What is Paul? He's single. <laughs> he doesn't have a wife. Which is not to say that marriage is wrong or bad, but that it's hard. It's a burden at some level. He explains this. Paul explains this later in verses 26 through 28 that that Zach will be preaching on next week. But he says, Because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. You got to love Paul's marital counsel there, you know. Like, I am might just spare you the heartache here, everyone. But I want to bring up another burden of marriage that I don't think we often really think about and we definitely don't really talk about within the church. Um, and I think I think Paul is dealing with this here, this particular burden in verses 6 through 9, where he is specifically addressing those who are single and those who are single again, the, the, the widows in, in the church. Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So, I think as married people, just listen to me quickly, married folks. As married people, we have a tendency to make marriage into the ideal life that it is the end-all, be-all, that it is the ultimate goal. And once we attain it, we have succeeded. We put it on a pedestal, we, we make it this goal that everyone else in your life must achieve in order to attain true happiness and true fulfillment. And maybe not on purpose, but we look down upon our single friends as less happy or, or, or less fulfilled because they aren't married yet. And we say, oh, poor you, let me let me help you out. I know a perfect person for you, or which is not wrong. But if it's motivated by sadness or motivated by this desire that you are not uh, completed until you have a husband or until you have a wife, that's wrong. Tim and Kathy Keller uh, have a whole chapter in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, on singleness. And and they say this, Western culture tempts us to put our hopes in apocalyptic romance. And finding complete spiritual and emotional fulfillment in the perfect mate, innumerable Disney-style popular culture narratives begin telling life stories only when two parties are about to find true love, and then once they do, the story fades out. The message is that what matters in life is found is finding romance and marriage. Everything else is prologue and afterward. So both traditional and Western cultures can make singleness seem like a uh, a subhuman condition. And I really believe that we've done that. So for singles, you you need to understand, to say all that, you need to understand that you are not lesser because you are single. But you also need to understand that God is not punishing you. God is not trying to just like, uh, you know, just to test you or, or whatever it might be. But he has called you to be single at this moment in time. And, and in this particular season, this is, you're, you're called to live a biblically single life. For some of you who are single, or single again, uh, marriage for you may be on a pedestal as well. Maybe you are in that ideal, just as married folk might see this this way, but maybe marriage is on a pedestal for you as well, you, because you've made it the ideal. You've made it the goal of life. You've, you've made, the, made it the pinnacle of real love. And anything less than that, anything less than marriage to you is disappointing and a crushing blow. I'll never be happy. I'll never be fulfilled. So I would say for both the married folk and the single folk, marriage is not the source of ultimate happiness. It's not. To expect this of marriage and to expect this of your spouse is to ask of that person and to ask of marriage something it was never intended to do. Because marriage is actually meant to be a type of the archetypal marriage, which is our final point today. This means marriage is is supposed to point to a better marriage. So earthly marriage is meant to point to a better marriage. And this is truly what Paul is trying to get the Christians in Corinth to understand and to see. Because both married people and single people need to see that earthly marriage is penultimate. Which means earthly marriage is secondary because there's an ultimate marriage that will outlast it. And it's what earthly marriage points to. This, this is the intention. This is the true intention of your marriage. This is why I had read for us earlier from Ephesians 5 that, that describes this idea very well. Let me just read it again just to, so your memory is refreshed. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So a lot of times, I left out those first couple of verses because a lot of times I think we see uh, that Ephesians 5 as this, you know, Wives submit period and then that's how that's where we go with that but what Paul was really trying to uh, get us to understand was yes submission is in is in marriage uh, it, it takes place but what re- what Paul really wants the church to see is this husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless, In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And that's what our earthly marriages point to. And at some level, I've said this before, even those who are not believers, those who are not Christians that are married, at some level, even their marriage is pointing to the ultimate marriage between Christ and his bride. So what this means is that our ultimate fulfillment for the married and the single is to see the, the secondary status of marriage. So, so to take it off its pedestal and, and to develop a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Jesus. So if you want to have a fulfilling single life, fall in love with Jesus and pursue him. Seek his face, like we confess earlier, seek his face with everything that you have. If you want to have a fulfilling, joyful marriage, fall in love with Jesus, put him first, seek him with everything you have, seek his face with everything that you have. Because Jesus is the most committed person to you, because he's committed himself not only to your life, in his life, but he's also committed himself to you in his death. He died for you. No other reason. He died for you. Jesus is always the better servant. Your husband or wife will not serve you well. But Jesus will every time. Jesus is who you worship, not your spouse, not marriage. Jesus is the true ideal and the true satisfaction. Jesus is the one who gets all other loves in order. So if your love of Jesus is out of order, every other love in your life will be out of order. And the only way that you can do this, the only way that you can do that is by resting and rejoicing in your marriage to Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, it is it is very easy for us, even as Christians, to make other things ultimate because they're good. Sex is good. Marriage is good. All those things are good. And so we can very easily make those things the most important things in our life. And as we do that, we, we make Jesus second. We make our relationship with him second. And everything else gets out of order. Our marriage is out of order. Our, our singleness is out of order. Our families are out of order. Our relationships with our friends and family members are all out of order. Because our love of you is not priority number one. And so I pray that out of all of the things that were said today, that that would be the most important thing that we remember, is to make Jesus priority number one in our life. To allow him to order our loves, because we love him most. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.